quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Commercial real estate is one of the places where if you put in the hustle and you do the effort, you can get rewarded greatly for it. A lot of other things, you're just putting in money and and hoping that the operator does well. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Ken Naim. Ken is joining us from Lake Worth, Florida. He is the president of an IT consulting company and managing member of Beacon One, which is a real estate syndication company. Ken is the owner of a 37,000 square foot office building, a 25,000 square foot industrial building that's syndicated and a 12,000 square foot retail center. Ken, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Great. How are you? Very well, Ken. Before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. I grew up in New York City and uh, we moved around a little bit as a child, but I ended up back in New York and I went to high school and college in New York and I graduated as a pharmacist of all things. And I absolutely hated it. And I decided to go into IT instead. But before I went into IT in that transition period, I also bought my first real estate investment, which was a condo for my grandparents. They were renting for over 30 years, and I decided that I wanted them to not worry about rent increases, not worry about if they have to move or anything along those lines. So with no job and no money, I got my first condo that I bought. And you were probably living in an apartment? I was still living with my parents at the the time. Wow, what a gracious move. Good for you. You've got to be like the family favorite person. (laughs) Uh, family comes first. That's what we're here for. Making money second. All right, Ken, pharmacist to IT. You're still in IT, but somewhere along the lines, real estate came back at you. What happened? I didn't have any financial education growing up. Both my parents were immigrants. So I had to learn everything the hard way. So I knew real estate was a good investment in the long term. I didn't realize that You can actually make really good money on it in the short term. So it was always the second choice for me. I looked into a bunch of other things first that I thought I could make money quickly. And they didn't turn out very well. We'll discuss some of that later, I'm sure. So I bought multifamily. I bought single family homes. And they did okay for a while. And then there was the 08, 09 crash, which put a dent in them. But I wasn't over leveraged, so I really wasn't affected like a lot of other people. And eventually I started to realize that residential is not really the way to go. There are too many issues and too many factors affecting it. So I decided to sell off all my residential portfolio and move into commercial. And that's when I realized that the real value of real estate, where you can really get rewarded for the effort that you put in. Residential, it's tied to what other people do, and commercial, it's tied to what you do. What was your first commercial property? 
first commercial property was a 40,000 square foot industrial warehouse in a little town called Sebastian, Florida. And I knew nothing about industrial. I took the leap because it was a screaming deal and it worked out immensely well. Explain this to me, Ken. Nobody goes from single families to a 40,000 square foot warehouse without having knowledge of commercial real estate. How did you interpret this to be a screaming deal? This was a deal at the height of the pandemic, May of 20. And another investor had bought it and he had negotiated the hell out of the deal because the seller was really, really desperate. But because of COVID, he was afraid that he couldn't actually work the deal. So he took a small profit, even though the property was appraised for almost 80% more than what I bought it. It was worth over 100% more than what he bought it. And that was in its dilapidated condition. So I knew that if I rehabbed it and I was patient, which was hard during COVID, I'll admit, and I got the work done, which took twice as long than it needed to do and probably was more expensive than it needed to be. But I knew that I could get much more than the appraised value at that time. What made you confident that you would be able to turn this around? Well, it was a 40,000 square foot warehouse that I bought for one and a quarter million. And on a price per square foot basis, I knew that it was worth over two compared to the other properties in the area. It was relatively close to the highway and it was very close to the space coast. And I was hoping to get some kind of tech company in there that I knew could pay a lot. And we had a lot of interest, but nobody pulled the trigger on it because of COVID. We ended up getting a bicycle company in there and we bought it for 1.225 and we sold it for 2.6. How dilapidated was this? It was awful. I think we used 40, 40 cubic yard containers to get rid of all the trash that was around the property and inside the warehouse. It was a 40 year old building. The concrete parking lot around it was in awful shape. It looked like Mars, basically, craters and holes, and it was awful. We had to repave the whole thing. There were some roof leaks that needed to be taken care of. And you're giving me anxiety. Yes. I'm telling you, I took a hard money load on it. So trust me, I was anxious the whole time, every month on it. But it had value, and I saw the value, and I saw the potential. Just the paint job alone added so much value to it because... The paint job and the paving, those two items made it look practically brand new. Other than comps, was there any other positive news that gave you the confidence that this would be a good investment? The leasing price. My ultimate goal was to lease it, not to flip it. But the leasing value of 6 to $9 a foot would have made the cash on cash returns through the roof. They projected over 40% cash on cash on that one. So I realized that even if I got half of the going rate, I would still make a profit and a decent profit. So I didn't see a lot of downside to it. I don't mind taking big risks as long as my downside is limited. You know, maybe I won't hit a grand slam, but I'll get a single worst case. And that's okay too. You need singles in your portfolio. Okay. So your downside was essentially hedged. Well, now that you sold this, you've got a million dollar plus profit. What's next? Well, after all the renovations and commissions, it was about 700,000 profit. 
So that's when I took my investment plus the profit and I started looking for another deal. It took me about six months to find it. So I didn't do a 1031 because I wanted to find another streaming deal and I wasn't going to be pigeonholed into finding a mediocre deal just because I had 45 days. So it took about six months and I found a class A office building in Lake Mary, Florida, which was relatively in great shape, almost no deferred maintenance. And they just had one vacancy, but the vacancy was for 5,800 square feet. And we bought it at a 6.8 cap, where in the market's probably high fives, low sixes. So it was a decent deal, but the key was it was a 6.8 cap on existing NOI. So it's kind of like we bought that 14% for free. And once we rent that out for approximately $30 a foot, it's going to have another 180000 to the NOI, which pretty much is going to double our investment. So even if it takes a year or two years to rent it out, it's still a good deal. But we're hoping to do it in six months or less. Ken, you're still working a full-time job, right? Yeah, pretty much. How do you find these deals? I look for rock star brokers and build relationships with them. I haven't found many, but the ones that are rock stars, I don't know how they do it, but they get off market deals all the time for 500,000, 5 million, 50 million. They get them at all different price points. And these properties can be distressed in many different ways. And they usually have a lot of hair on them for whatever reason. But if you're willing to take on the problems and you're willing to deal with them, there's a lot of money to be made. Earlier, you mentioned you went through some try to get rich quick schemes. And we all do that when we're younger. You know, that's why there's so many Robinhood accounts, so many Coinbase accounts. We want that easy money. What's right. an example of something you lost money on? I lost money on commodity trading where supposedly you're hiring a professional to trade gold or soybeans or pork bellies or whatever the commodity is. And they have these supposed systems and everything. And they even if their system, there's flaws in it and it just doesn't work. I've lost 70% of my investment in three months or less with some of these items. And I recommend that just don't invest in anything you don't understand. There is taking a leap where you'll figure stuff out along the way. But I don't think anybody really understands commodity trading or Forex trading was another one I invested in. Oil and gas drilling. Some of them I'm sure are legitimate, but it's very hard to do due diligence on these types of people. I was just pitched a mineral rights land deal. They sent me a whole bunch of education material. I know nothing about that. And I don't want to sit there and read about it and learn about it. So yeah, stick to what you know. But speaking of which, you have industrial office. You also have a 12,000 square foot retail center. That one's still in contract. Uh, okay. So you're asset agnostic. Yeah, I'm looking for value that I can create. And I don't care what form it comes. If the building is physically distressed, we'll go in and we'll rehab it and get value that way. If it's financially distressed, we'll go in, raise rents or lower expenses, depending where the value is. The office building, we're upgrading fluorescent lights to LED lights. It's costing us 40000 
$1,000 to do the project. It's going to save $20,000 a year. So that's a 50% return cash on cash. And even better, even at an eight cap, saving $40,000 is about a quarter million dollars in added value to the building. So I'll trade 40 grand for 250 all day long. Yeah, Ken, you're making some killer moves. Why do you still work a full-time job? Because I've been so focused on growing net worth that I haven't created passive income yet. So once I get to the point where I'm creating income and not focusing on net worth creation, then I'll leave the full-time job. All right, let's dive into that. And best ever listeners, fair disclosure, Ken and I are in the same commercial mastermind together and he is a good friend of mine. But Ken, you mentioned passive income versus net worth. How do you differentiate the two? All the money that I've ever invested into anything, but particularly real estate, any profits that come out of it, I just use to grow the portfolio. So as far as I'm concerned, that's not even really my money. That's future me's money. So I kind of need income to have current me and my family live our lives. Let me play devil's advocate. So if you make $700,000 on one of these deals, why not consider that income for X number of years? Because or that why not, income, Sorry, why not take half of that and consider that income? Because I didn't feel comfortable enough that that would last forever. But once I sell this office building, the profits will be great enough that I can separate it into multiple buckets. I'll have one bucket that will be for value-add investing. I'll have one bucket for just pure income generation. And then I'll have enough that I'll just leave in cash that we can live off of for the next five years. Okay. And on that office building, Ken, 6.8 cap was your entry. Yes. What do you predict your exit will be? Depends how quickly I can get at least. I've gotten informal offers currently at high fives, low sixes. But if it takes too long and the market starts having more cap rate expansion, then we might be selling it at the high sixes, low sevens. How uh, much NOI will you add on this property? 180000 maybe more with the cam charges. Okay. And what was the purchase price again? Seven and a half million. Okay. Did you raise capital for that deal? No, that was all me. That's one of the reasons. It took the two investments that I had and my savings and pretty much all the cash I had. I was looking for a $5 million deal when I found the seven and a half. And I didn't think it was going to work, but somehow got it done. Well, listen, I bet a lot of people thought that industrial building wasn't going to work. Everybody thought it was. (laughs) Okay. Um, They thought I fell on my head. $180,000 divided by, let's say, a seven cap, be conservative. What does that come out to? It should be over $2 million, $2.5 million. Okay, so you added over $2.5 million in what, a year, year and a half? It's going to be hopefully nine months. Okay, that is a massive win. So one, I think you got to quit your job. Once this does, I will. I'm planning on it by the end of the year. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but 
you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into multifamily? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 23rd through 25th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from high-level apartment investing experts while networking with over 700 investors. If that's not enough for you, Shaq, yes, Shaquille O'Neal, Barbara Corcoran, Jocko Willink will be there as well. Be sure to secure your tickets at mfincon.com to find out more. VIP ticket holders can rub shoulders with these high-level speakers after their sessions. For details on sponsorship opportunities and tickets, visit mfincon.com. Use the promo code BESTEVER and get $200 off your tickets. That's mfincon.com, promo code BESTEVER. You seem to be onto something with finding these undervalued commercial properties. Why not take on investor capital? I'm starting to do that. I did my first syndication this year. And in the beginning, I'm an introvert by nature and doing all the capital raising wasn't something I was really looking forward to. But once I started talking to people and they find out how passionate I am about real estate, it kind of comes naturally. So I was scared of it, I guess, or I don't know, scared or apprehensive about it. But it turns out that it's not that bad. And there's a lot of capital out there and people are always looking for great deals. So it's definitely a path that I'm pursuing now. And would you consider partnering with somebody if you don't love the capital raising part? Why not consider having a partner who adds value by raising capital, maybe managing the asset or other avenues? In the past, I was very apprehensive about partners. I've seen so many partnerships fail and I've seen people that were very untrustworthy, but in the last six months or so, I've started to meet a lot of people who I feel are trustworthy and would be a good fit for a partnership. So it's definitely something I'm considering. And I don't mind the capital raising now, but there's just so much to do, especially when you have multiple properties between managing the properties and talking to agents and finding the deals and dealing with insurance and leasing and signs and pretty much the entire process. So I'm not saying that I'm looking for a partner, but if a partnership were to come about, I would be for it. Yeah. I've heard Joe Fairless a number of times say, if you really want to scale, get a partner. And for 10 years, I was a one-man shop and really started scaling when I started working with other people. So yeah, I mean, I think- I've been um, a one-man shop for 25 years now. And it's good because you know who to blame when something goes wrong, when something doesn't get done, what it is. There's no miscommunication, but it does limit your potential. Yeah. Listen, when I was a one-man shop, I still passed the buck, even though it was me. (laughs) Ken, what's the hardest lesson you've learned 
in real estate investing? You got to do your due diligence and you got to do it in detail and don't skip a step because the broker told you this or the city told you that. Get everything black and white and crunch your numbers and make sure the numbers work and make sure that they work even in a scenario where not everything works out. Like you say, oh, if everything works, I'll have a home run. But make sure that even if it doesn't completely work and it's only half of your expectations, it's still a decent deal. Yeah. Ken, raising money, it seems like everyone's raising money for multifamily. Investors are familiar with that asset class. When you raise for office industrial retail, what are the challenges with investors think there's a retail apocalypse coming, office spaces dying. How do you get through to some of those challenges? Some people, you're just not going to get their mindset is fixed and they're just not open to it. So I just don't bother with with those people. With people that have at least an open mind, I just show them the numbers. I show them the facts. I try not to invest in any place that has declining population or declining income. So once you have a good location and you have an asset that's undervalued, usually people recognize that immediately. And those two things are two of the basic things for a successful deal, something that's undervalued and in a good area. I try not to deal with anything in war zones or anything where you might have some external factor all of a sudden just wipe out your entire plan. And Ken, you've got some massive returns what kind of returns do your investors see? On my first indication, I'm projecting a minimum 30% return to the investors. Most Over what likely period of time? Nine months. Wow. And probably it's going to go higher, probably 50 to 60%. But uh, I don't really tell them that because if I tell them 30 and it comes out to 40, they're thrilled. If I tell them 50 and it comes out to 40, they're I love that. It's a win-win for everybody. Would you consider doing a waterfall in the future? Uh, You get to reap more of the benefit. It is sort of a waterfall. There's an 8% prep and then it's a 50-50 split after that. Would you take it a step further? Oh, sorry. 12% prep and a 50-50. Okay. Would you take it a step further and tell the investors anything over 20% becomes 80-20, 70-30? Favor to the GP. Yeah, like I said, this was my first syndication and I was just really testing the waters and trying to figure out the whole process, the legal process, the investor process, raising capital. And again, I'm doing this all by myself. So there was a lot of learning. I put no fees in there, no acquisition or disposition or management fee or anything like that, which since then I've learned that there is some value in having that. So you don't want to do it excessively but there are some costs that need to be covered. And where do you find potential investors for your deal? I've joined basically two masterminds so far, one specializing in commercial real estate and one just in general with other high net worth individuals. And pretty much in both of those groups, everybody's investing in something. And a lot of it is real estate. A lot of it is multifamily, some commercial some triple net, some others, but they also invest in other items. And people are always looking for good deals, regardless of what the asset class is. And they're looking for trustworthy and vetted operators. A lot of times people don't invest in your deal 
they invest in you. So they might not understand industrial warehouses or manufacturing facilities, but they learn to say, oh, Ken knows this. So I'm not investing in his deal. I'm investing in him. They trust you to make the right choice. That's a great point. Yeah. Ken, can you talk about your 12,000 square foot retail center that's under contract? Yes. It's under contract for five and a half million right now. It's in an A plus location down here in Florida, about half an hour from my house. So it's really close by. One of the tenants went through bankruptcy about nine years ago and they renegotiated their lease at the time to only be like $12, $13 a square foot. I'm actually waiting on the lease right now. They're having trouble finding it, but the market rents over there are closer to $33 a square foot. And the average time on market is less than 30 days to rent it out. So either we get them to come up to market when their lease renews in 18 months, hopefully we'll negotiate that during due diligence. But as a worst case scenario, even if it does go vacant in 18 months, six months before I will start advertising it heavily and get it up to market. How many tenants are in this strip? Six tenants in the strip. And we have other good tenants there too. We have dental offices and a brand name massage parlor and a couple other brand name tenants. There's one tobacco shop that's the only mom and pop tenant in there. None, the none are, of the other ones are credit tenants, but uh, the big one is credit. Okay, so a mixture of mom and pop, regional, and one national tenant? Correct. Is there any other value add other than the tenant who is paying a really low rent? There's one other tenant that doesn't have a lease that has wanted a lease, and we just have to sign the lease. And maybe we're able to raise the rents a little bit. And that's a mom and pop operator? Yes, that is a mom and pop. They're all triple net leases, even the mom and pop. So the expense side is almost zero. Can you explain that to the best ever listeners? You're buying a strip center with six tenants. And it's all triple net leases. What does that mean? So a triple net lease is where the owner passes on the expense of maintaining the property onto the tenants. So they're responsible for paying the property taxes, insurance, maintenance. And depending on how the leases are written, it specifies exactly what they're responsible for and what the owner is. But in a true triple net lease, the tenants are responsible for everything. So everything from the roof maintenance to HVAC repairs or replacement to structure, insurance, taxes, electric, water, everything. Property taxes, usually the owner will pay it in this multi-tenant scenario. So let's say it's $50,000 and you have five tenants and they're all the same size. They would each send you a check for $10,000 and then you would pay the, the property taxes on. And basically... You estimate the values in the beginning of the year. Usually you add it on to their rent as a CAM charge. We usually break out our CAM charges into different categories so it's easy for them to see. And they just pay it to you every month. And at the end of the year, you figure out what your actuals were versus the estimate and you reconcile it. So if they've underpaid, you send them a bill for the difference. If you've overpaid, you give them a credit towards their next month's payment. And Ken, then you do a about, new estimate the next year. What about the big ticket items like commercial HVAC units or the roof? How does that get handled? If it's a big item, 
then you would have to amortize that into their payments. So if you replace the roof and it's a 50 year roof, you would have to budget it out and they would pay a certain percentage of that each year towards the roof replacement or HVAC replacement. It's a little trickier and that's where you have to make sure that you still have the finances for it. Like with this LED project that we're doing, it's going to reduce the electric bill considerably. So the tenants would save money, but based on our lease, we're allowed to build them back up to what the cost would have been before the project until the project gets paid off. Because we're not going to see the benefit, but they're going to see the benefit eventually. Let's say you put a quarter million dollars into roof and HVAC and a tenant leaves. They're off the hook for that expense. What happens with the next tenant that comes in? Do they inherit that debt? Actually, I've never dealt with that scenario. I never really thought about it. But I believe that gets valued into the lease at that point. And it all depends on how you negotiate it. That's the nice thing about commercial. Everything is negotiable. Yeah, so I haven't thought about that either. I was literally thinking out loud. And I would assume that's a selling point for your next lease, saying, hey, tenant, just so you know, we have a brand new HVC, brand new roof. So there's not going to be an assessment for X number of years. So just take comfort in the fact that you're not going to get hit with that. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, yeah. I haven't thought of that either, but it makes sense. <laughs> if you're doing a triple net lease and the roof is in bad shape, as a tenant in a situation like that, I would have to value that in because I know an assessment is coming. But no assessment. And on my office building, I'm working on getting the warranty of the roof transferred over. And we're going to have a 20-year warranty on our roof. And I think that adds a lot of value to the tenants because they know that there's parts and labor are included. So there'll be no roof maintenance for at least another 16 years on it. Yeah. And I guess it's no different than if you're buying a high-rise condo, you're going to want to know the condition of the roof. You'll be able to tell the condition of the exterior. If the hallways are still 70s decor, you probably can assume that they're going to have an assessment to update everything. Yeah. So, a lot of HOAs are that way too. Clubhouse yeah. is 30 years old. Guess what? There's going to be a multi-million dollar assessment. That- it can hit any time. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. So, Kent, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Best real estate advice is invest in what you know and what you can influence directly. There are a lot of things that you can invest in where you have no say whatsoever. And commercial real estate is one of the places where if you put in the hustle and you do the effort, you can get rewarded greatly for it. A lot of other things, you're just putting in money and, and hoping that the operator does well. So if you're going to invest passively, make sure that your operator knows what they're doing and they've done it before and they can create value, not just buying a stock and hoping the market recognizes that it's worth more tomorrow than it was today. Good advice. Ken, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I think so. All right, Ken, what's the best ever book you recently read? Catching Knives by Jake Harris. It talks about buying commercial real estate in depressions, whether localized or national, and really has some good tips in that. Ken, what's the best ever way you like to give back? There are two charities that my wife and I support. One is Bracket Strong. They help women going through mastectomies, either due to cancer or prophylactically. 
And one of the things that we really like about them is not only do they support the patient that's going through this, but they also support the caregivers, which a lot of times get forgotten in the process. And the second one is a charity that supports donkeys and horses that were abused, and they take them in and get them adopted to vetted homeowners. And then these animals get used for therapy called the Serenity Saviors Equine Reserve and Therapy Center. And they're really good people. We've met them personally, and they're just wonderful. Awesome. And Ken, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Just email me at canadbeaconoffices.com. It's uh, the company I use for the office building. And just feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer questions. And that was Beacon with a B, beaconoffices.com. B-A-C-O-N offices, plural.com. Awesome. Ken, thank you for your time today. Sharing your journey from becoming a pharmacist, pivoting to going to IT. You bought your first piece of real estate for your grandparents. An amazing move. You've been in real estate for a number of years. You're making some incredible moves, home run numbers, taking on investors. Can't wait to see what's next for you, Ken. Thank you again. Thank you. My pleasure. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.